Here's the word of the Lord from Leviticus 12. The Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites, when a woman becomes pregnant and gives birth to a male child, she will be unclean seven days, as she is during the days of her menstrual impurity. The flesh of his foreskin must be circumcised on the eighth day. She will continue in purification from her bleeding for 33 days. She must not touch any holy thing or go into the sanctuary until completing her days of purification. But if she gives birth to a female child, she will be unclean for two weeks as she is during her menstrual impurity. She will continue in purification from her bleeding for 66 days. When her days of purification are complete, whether for a son or a daughter, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a year-old male lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. He will present them before the Lord and make atonement on her behalf. She will be clean from her discharge of blood. This is the law for a woman giving birth, whether to a male or female. But if she doesn't have sufficient means for a sheep, she may take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. Then the priest will make atonement on her behalf and she will be clean. Thank you, Angela. You know, every once in a while, we get going on the, the book of Leviticus and I think, who is the guy that decided this is what we were going to do on Sunday mornings. And then I realized it was me. So I've got no one to blame but myself. Uh, But as Myung said a moment ago, we really do believe that all scripture is given by God and it's profitable. And uh, it's my joy to be able to get to unpack that passage for you today, as well as to help you be better equipped to read the Bible and to read stuff like this for yourself. My goal at the end of the day is to make it so you don't need me. Okay, that's my goal that you can go to the Word of God for yourself and understand what God is communicating to us. But in order to do that, uh, I need God's help. You need God's help. Will you join with me in prayer? Lord, we we really need you. And Lord, we thank you that uh, you have given us your written Word, and we ask and we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would send your Holy Spirit to, first of all, lead and guide my speech and what I share, that it would all be in line with the truth of your word. And Lord, I ask and I pray that you would give each one of us soft hearts, teachable hearts, receptive hearts, that we would hear what it is that you have for us today. And we would see that you are a God who brings life on the other side of death. We pray for this time together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Okay, imagination for a moment. I want you to imagine that maybe you're just getting home from work, you're driving home from work, you pull up in the driveway, you walk in the front door, you open the front door, and right there in the living room as you're walking into your house, you see a giant pool of blood. Now you are, unless you're uh, abnormal, you're going to assume that something terrible has happened. Just blood everywhere. It's death fear, it's trembling, it's something not good has happened. But then, from the other room, you hear a sound. You hear a squawk, that that precious 
squawk and, and cry of a brand new baby infant. And all of a sudden, oh, that's not just some random pool of blood. That's not death. That's actually new life. And you're flooded with a sense of relief because what just a moment ago was surely a symbol and an emblem of death is now actually a symbol and an emblem of brand new life. Now, uh, I can actually remember the very first newborn that I ever heard squawking. Do you know who it was? It was my sister who was up here leading music for us. My parents were the kind of people that built a house. My dad built it himself with his dad and grandpa. And then we all were born in that house, home births in the 1980s, because that's what you did in Alaska. Uh, There's a comedian, Jim Gaffigan. He had a line that goes, we had all our children at home because we wanted to make you feel uncomfortable. That's my family. That's us, right? And my parents, when I was four years old and my sister was born, they actually invited me in to cut the umbilical cord. And I have been scarred for life ever since that, okay? So, yes, I can remember that first time of interacting with, you know, a brand new newborn, and why is she so purple, and is she always going to be this annoying and squawky, and uh, her voice is much more beautiful now than it was that day. I can remember that, right? But this idea of childbirth, a brand newborn. Now, granted, as a male, I stand up here, and for all the women in the room, you can be the ones to confirm this, but having been there for my own children, childbirth is an ordeal. Can I get an amen from the ladies who've gone through that, right? It is quite the ordeal. In fact, for many mothers who have gone through that experience of giving birth, you would almost say, oh, man, I I feel like I almost died. But actually, you know what's more serious than that? is that throughout human history, childbirth is, if not the leading cause, it's among the leading cause of death for women. Talking with my sister uh, in the past week and even talking with my wife, uh, our firstborn daughter, when Erin Lynn went into labor, there was complications and she had the umbilical cord wrapped around her and, and were it not for the, the blessing and the grace of medical technology, I honestly don't know what would have happened on the other side of that. And my sister, same thing, very difficult uh, labor with her firstborn daughter, our, my oldest niece in that family. And were it not for medical intervention that we are blessed, amen, that we're blessed to have in this day and age, I honestly don't know. Would I have my oldest daughter? Would I have my wife? Who knows? Because for so much of human history, for a woman to give birth to a child was quite literally to brush up against death. And even as recently as 2012, the CDC reported that among women ages 24 through 30, childbirth is still the sixth leading cause of death. That's 10-year-old information. It's such a paradox, isn't it? The preciousness of new life coming into the world, but it coming through such a close encounter with death. And so here in the book of Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 12, in this ancient society more than 3,000 years ago, when women are are dealing with this uh, absolute joy of welcoming new life into the world, but also dealing with this absolute terror of facing death, the Lord God offers a ritual, a ceremony to mark the passage through this ordeal and to offer cleansing and wholeness on the other side. And I'll just say this, um, 
I'm not the kind of person that rewrites my sermons or really adjusts the, the sermon schedule based on what happens in the news. Well, first of all, if that was the case, I'd be writing a new sermon every single Saturday because there's always something that happens in the news. But I do find it um, providential that we're dealing with something in the Bible about the preciousness of life on the week that we're seeing this pretty massive reversal of the Supreme Court decision on Roe versus Wade. And I know that for uh, many people, there's a lot of uh, nuanced conversations and legal opinions and all that sort of stuff. But I hope and pray that as followers of Jesus, we can see one thing for darn clear, and that's God loves life. He is the author of life. He is the creator of life. He is the preserver of life. We as a church have been involved in, in, in caring for life, not just in birth, but in foster care and adoption all the way up to our senior care ministry that we serve a God who's the God who uh, originated life. And as followers of Jesus, we are always about seeking to preserve life as a way of honoring the God who's the author of life. So I'm still preaching the same sermon, but I just find it very... Um, beautiful to honor women and to honor new children. And I'll just say this too, there's a lot of forces in our culture that are trying to pit those two things against one another, uh, generates a lot more clicks on their website and a lot of more ad revenue. And we reject that. God loves women. That was not convincing enough. You're tired from the heat. God loves women. God loves children. God is the author of life. All right, now, Here's the problem. In order to preach Leviticus chapter 12, I have to zoom back out. This is what you would call the director's cut extended edition, okay? I need to zoom out and make sure that we remember a few really important concepts that will help us as we tackle this chapter. So go with me to Bible school, if you would, for a minute, okay? Let's remember some concepts. The first concept that we encountered when we started studying the book of Leviticus was that of holiness, And holiness, when you hear the word holiness, you might think of like self-righteous or a really good person, uh, you know, holier than thou, that kind of a thing. But that's not really what the word holy means in the book of Leviticus. The word holy means something that is distinct or special or set apart, holy other, holy unique. God is holy. There's no one like God. There's nothing in all of creation that's like God. You can't even use analogies for God. You know, water, ice, steam, the eggshell, the white, the yolk. None of those things work because God is just unlike anything in all of creation. Okay, you with me? Now that which is not holy is just simply referred to as common. And common is ordinary. Common is regular. Maybe some of your older fashioned translations might even use the word profane. And that's a little bit of a bummer because now we think profane like profanity. But originally the word profane, it just meant common, ordinary. So like you have your dishes that you use every day. And then you have those special dishes that you pull out you know, when it's Thanksgiving or Christmas, okay? Those are your holy dishes. Uh, you use those only on special occasions. And then later today, when you go home and you microwave leftovers for lunch, you're going to pull out the profane plates, which is actually a great band name, by the way, okay? The regular common versus that which is holy. But here's the third thing that comes into play, and it's the concept of clean, In order for God to take something that is common and ordinary and to make it holy, first it must be clean. Think of it like a prerequisite. 
If something is impure or unclean, and those words just kind of get used back and forth, it's not ready to be holy yet. It has to go through the prerequisite. Like if any of you in college, you wanted to take the class that you had to take for your degree, but there were these prerequisites, you had to do that first. That's what cleanness or purity is kind of like. And it depends, you can, you can go to different places within the temple or the tabernacle depending on if you're clean or if you're holy. Jay Sklar writes this, he says, a modern analogy is that of physical health and cleanness. A person with the flu may not go into a hospital to hold a newborn baby. But a person who is healthy, well, they can go in that hospital. But a person who is healthy and sterilized may go into an operating room, but the person who is simply healthy may not. Just as your physical health and cleanness determine what you can do and where you can go in a hospital, the Israelites' ritual states determined what they could do and where they could go in terms of ritual actions, places, and times. You guys with me so far? Okay, you tracking? You doing okay? You doing okay? I don't know. Ritual... I'm glad that, that Jay Sklar uses this word ritual because it gets a little bit more complicated. Can I complicate things for you one more time? In the book of Leviticus, purity can refer to sometimes moral purity or ritual impurity. There's two different types of purity or cleanness. Moral impurity is something from an action. You did something wrong. You stole, you lied, you hit somebody. Ritual impurity is all this stuff that has to do with substances and objects and animals. and It's, it's much more tactile than moral impurity. Moral impurity are those things that are inherently wrong. Just in and of themselves, it is wrong. It's wrong to lie. It's wrong to steal. It's wrong to murder. Whereas ritual impurity are things that are not in and of themselves inherently wrong. Remember, we're talking about childbirth today. Is there anything wrong with giving birth to a child? This is, a, this is not a trick question. Is there anything sinful or wrong about giving birth? No, in fact, this is one of the things that God commanded. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. So we know that ritual purity is not a moral issue, right? Uh, the moral impurity, the idea is these things are avoidable. You could have not lied. You could have not stolen your neighbor's goat. Whereas ritual impurity are those things that are unavoidable. They just happen to us in human life. And then lastly, Maybe most importantly, mor um, moral impurity is about morality. It's about right and wrong, but ritual impurity, hear this, this is it, this is really important. Ritual impurity is about mortality. Not morality, but mortality. The reminder that we are mortal, that death is very close. These, these ritual impurities come uh, in a number of different ways. Three different categories that you can see. Uh, the first one is what, I'm just gonna use the term reproductive fluids, okay? And uh, you know, a little bit of that today in Leviticus 12. We'll be getting into that in Leviticus 15. I think it's the second or third Sunday in August. Be thinking about who you wanna invite to church that week. It's gonna be great. The second source of ritual impurity is skin diseases, rashes and white flaky skin and moles with the hair that poke through. Go read it. Go read it now. Ask your grandma if she wants to come to church with you. Like, just go read it right now. And then the third one is contact with a corpse. 
And the thing that scholars point out is the similarity between all of these things is, again, it's contact with death. This is about mortality. That obviously, contacting a corpse, you're literally touching a dead body. And with the, the skin, the white, ashy skin disease, that you look like a corpse. Or with the various fluids in our body that are, you know, the loss of those life fluids is like a symbolic type of death. This is all about a reminder that you and I are dust. You and I, unless the Lord Jesus returns, will all breathe our last one day. You and I are mere Mortals. Ritual purity is a reminder that we are mere mortals. Just out of curiosity, is there anybody here in this room that grew up going to a church that had a cemetery in the yard? Is there anybody? None of us? You know that that used to be, oh, okay, one, okay. You know that that used to be like the most common place for a cemetery to be is on the church property. Aaron Lynn and I took a trip to Boston a number of years ago and we were walking around and we came up on this old church building and to get to the front door, you literally had to walk through a cemetery. And we're looking around at all the headstones and there were people, there was people on that, like the list that were pastors of that church. And it was like, you know, 17 whatever to 17 whatever and they lived and they died and their body was buried there. So literally to just go to church, you had to be reminded of the fact that one day you're going to die. Now, in our society, we have sanitized death. We have pushed death off to the side at various times because of our advancements in technology and medical treatment. We feel invincible. We feel immortal. But I would remind you that death, with one exception that I'll get to later, has a perfect track record. One out of one will die. I wish we had a cemetery here on the property. I've actually sent an email to the elders asking them to consider it, but so far no one's responding to me yet. But it's, it's, it's this idea that when you come here, I'm trying to get you ready for death. I want you to live your life in such a way that you are reminded that we are mere mortals. We don't last forever. The younger you are, the healthier you are, the more you might feel like death is just so far off. The older you get, from any of our older saints, amen, like the older you get, the longer you live, the more you realize like, yeah, I'm not long for this world. And again, that's what this ritual purity stuff is all about. So let's go back to our passage. Now let's get back to the actual text and see how this moment of childbirth is such a reminder that, that though there's new life in the world, death is just a, a, a breath away. Leviticus chapter 12. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, if a woman conceives and bears a male child, she shall be unclean, ritually unclean for seven days. Just like it is at her regular time of the month, she shall be unclean. The word there that's translated at the time of her menstruation is the same Hebrew word that is often just translated weakness or infirmity. And I see in their grace of God as a recognition that sisters, you women, deal with things on a physical level that are just hard. It's just difficult. It's just challenging. And there's grace in there. Verse three, on the eighth day, that male child shall have the flesh of his foreskin circumcised. So last week we talked about kosher food. This week we've got circumcision. These are all of these uh, uh, markers, identity markers of the Jewish people. Then after that week... She's going to continue for 33 more days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, 
nor shall she come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are complete. It's kind of interesting. It's like you have the week where you're all the way fully unclean, but then you do have to come forward and bring the child to be circumcised, but don't go all the way in. It's like that hospital analogy. You can come close, but not all the way in until the 33 days of the purifying are done. It's like, here's the analogy that came to mind for me. It's like, hey, when you, when you first have a child, it's like, you know, there's the really serious period of uncleanness, but then you got to keep it going. It's like when you're sick and the doctor gives you antibiotics and after a few days you start to feel better. But what does that doctor say? Take all the antibiotics, keep going all the way through, see it through to the very end so that there can be this complete purification after childbirth. Verse five, but if she bears a female child, she shall be unclean, not just one week, but two just like her menstruation, her regular time of the month. And then she shall continue in the blood of her purifying for 66 days, for a total of 80. So it's not just 40, now it's 80. We're going to come back to that. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, doesn't matter, you're going to bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. Or you might remember that I'm convinced that that word hatat in Hebrew is better translation as a purifying offering. It's not a sin to have a baby. This is a purification offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord, the priest will, and make atonement for her. Then she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female, doesn't matter. It's the same offering for boy babies and girl babies. And if she cannot afford a lamb, verse 8, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering, the other for that purification offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. God's grace and God's accommodation for those who lack the financial resources. God cares about the poor. Can I get an amen on that one? Now, if you are a normal human being, you might have some questions about this passage. Let's answer a few of those, okay? The first question is the most basic one. Why would childbirth cause impurity? And hopefully I've already answered this for you, but just to remind you that it has to do with coming into such close contact with death. Ritual impurity is about mortality and death. Even in a successful childbirth where healthy baby and everything has gone well, there's a long period of bleeding afterwards so it's a constant reminder of the presence of death. And even that this new life comes through a sort of death, that life and death are just inextricably linked. And maybe even that it's most sobering is the idea that this little baby, this brand new human being, will themselves one day die. Life and death are inseparably linked. And so this ritual impurity and the, and the ritual that God gives for the cleansing is his grace. It's his grace and his mercy. Second question, which again, maybe some of you who are not as familiar with Old Testament, you're gonna ask a question, why is it that we need to have atonement? And I, I think that this question is, is valid, but it's often a case that when people think of the word atonement, they think only of forgiveness. Like the woman needs to be forgiven of something. And I would remind you that atonement includes forgiveness. If you've done something wrong, atonement, yes, means forgiveness, but atonement is bigger than just forgiveness. Atonement means wholeness 
and, and washing and cleansing and just everything being set right. The analogy, you know, being after a physical childbirth, again, many of the women I know that have gone through that experience, you want to take a shower afterwards. I just feel, oh, I just need to be cleansed. I just need to be washed. In a spiritual sense, this is what's going on. This is not just a washing for the body, it's a cleansing for the soul. That is what the atonement here means. It's a purification. Lastly, though, is the question, why is it that the lengths of purification are different by the gender of the baby? And stop me if you've heard this one from our Leviticus series. We don't really know. No direct answer is given. Let me offer you four possible reasons that I came from reading 14 different scholars on this subject matter. And at the end, again, not to give away the ending, we don't really know. However, some would say that it's about ancient medical beliefs. Ancient medical beliefs. Uh, There was a rabbi in the Middle Ages who wrote that when a woman gives birth to a, a girl baby, she will have a longer period of postnatal bleeding and discharge, so therefore girl babies need more purification. I had Erin Lynn text an OBGYN friend of ours, and she said, uh, this is medical jargon, but uh, like just doesn't, there's nothing medically about that. It just does, completely doesn't make, make any sense. It's totally made up, but you might see that, okay? Some people have, have said there's maybe some ancient medical beliefs going on in there, but it's pretty speculative. Number two, Some people have put forward that it's about reflecting creation order. Uh, In the book of Jubilees, the book of Jubilees is one of those books that was written in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and they're not part of our Bible, but Protestants sometimes get really extra scared of them, so just, you know, read them for what they are. Interesting, not the Bible. But in the book of Jubilees, the author of Jubilees goes on and on and on about how Adam was created first, and then he had to wait for seven days, and then he had to wait for another 33 days, and then he could come into Eden, and then Eve was created later, and she had to wait for two weeks, and then she had to wait for 66 days before Eve could enter into Eden, and it's this whole big complicated reading of Leviticus 12 onto Genesis 2. And I read it. It's, first of all, it's super fascinating, but it's also just basically made up. So uh, take that for what it's worth. The third reason why some people say that the, the time for purification for boys is shorter than it is for girls is it has to do with circumcision. That the time period would be the same length of time, but because boys need to go through this ritual of circumcision, the time is cut short, if I can use that language. Uh, come on, you guys, we're dealing with awkward stuff. You gotta, you gotta let me have one, right? That, there, that it's shortened because... For the female baby, she's going to go through this two-week and two-month period of cleansing, but the circumcision ritual that happens to baby boys is a replacement for some of that time. That might be, that might be valid. I don't know. There's something valid to it. It also helps bring up the idea that in the Bible, certain instructions have precedent over the other one, right? Jesus says, yeah, tithing is good, but justice is better, right? Uh, the Word of God says, yeah, like, Honoring the Sabbath is good, but preserving life is more important. That we weigh the instructions of the scripture given. So here it's like, hey, have this time of purification, but actually uh, circumcision, because it's such an important ritual for the baby boys, for the Jewish people, maybe that time is then shortened. And the last one, and this is the one that I think has the most 
uh, likelihood for me, this is the one that I found the most compelling, is that it's a pre-purification for future mothers. That when a little baby girl is born, there's a reminder that according to the natural flow of life, she will also grow up, get married, and become pregnant and go through this whole ordeal herself. And in fact, some scholars have even put forward that in this additional time of purification, it is an extra measure of grace, an extra measure of a gift for little baby girls. And where our society and our culture reads it, oh, see, it's, 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 it's you know, uh, the, the girls are twice as unclean as the boys. What if, in fact, our culture has it exactly 180 degrees wrong and it's an extra measure of love and care and grace for the little baby girls who are, under, who are gonna undergo a really challenging ordeal at some point in their life? I think there's grace in that. I think there's God's mercy in that. At the end of the day, Richard Hess, a scholar, he summarized it this way. He goes, look, it's ambiguous. So we cannot allow for conclusions that use this passage as a proof text for a patriarchal society in which boys have greater value than girls. There is simply too little known about the reasoning behind the procedures applied here. And further, as the following section suggests, the actual restoration of the mother to the sanctuary involves the same sacrifice whether her child is male or female. It's the same. So there you go. We've done Leviticus chapter 12. Let me bring it back around to the main point here, okay? Because again, I see this acknowledgement from God as saying, listen, to the woman. I mean, this, this passage is, is given directly to women. You've just brushed up against death. You've just undergone this massive ordeal. You've just seen your own mortality as close as you possibly could. And, And now there's a new life on the other side of it. So rest up, heal up, take some time. And when you're ready, you come back to the tabernacle, bring the sacrifice, and let me assure you that you are whole and you are clean. And let God remind his daughters in this passage that he's the kind of God that, like a mother, brings new life on the other side of death. How many of you know that our God is the kind of God who brings new life out of all sorts of things that are like just a brush with death or even death itself? You think of it in nature, that new life only comes when a seed falls to the ground and dies. We don't get new plants without death. Or I think of it in the story of the Exodus, the story that's led us to this moment in Leviticus, that God's rescuing his people, he's ransoming his people out of slavery in Egypt, but what does he have to take them through? He has to pass them through what? The the waters of death, the waters of the Red Sea. And that these waters mean life and purification and freedom for God's people, but those same exact waters mean death for the enslavers in Egypt. And that the people of God had to literally walk through these waters of death in order to experience new life. And ultimately, friends, we see this principle at place the most clearly in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That this Leviticus chapter 12, this this birth and this ceremony and all of this is meant to point us to the ultimate one who brings life on the other side of death. Hey, did you guys know that Mary knew this passage? 
Did you guys know that Mary and Joseph, her husband, were deeply embedded in Leviticus? Did you know that I am trying to, uh, in a good way, ruin the whole New Testament for you by taking you through Leviticus? Because once you start reading Leviticus, you can't read the New Testament without seeing it everywhere. It's just everywhere. Even in that beautiful Christmas passage, Luke chapter 2, that we all put on our Christmas cards and we mail out to everyone, no one puts the right verses on there. They all skip verse 21. Verse 21 says, when the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name that the angels gave before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. What is happening here? This is not a trick question. It is literally Leviticus 12 that I've been talking to you about for the last half hour. It's exactly what's going on here. That Mary knew that this child that she welcomed into the world was no ordinary child. And that Mary knew that the Lord had given this instruction for her benefit as well as for the child's benefit. That Mary went through the ordeal of childbirth. And what's more, Mary had to travel to do it. The CDC doesn't even like, let pregnant women travel anymore if you're too pregnant, right? Mary had to go to a different town. She had to sleep in a room with animals. She passed through this ordeal of death to welcome in the one who was going to ransom and redeem God's people forever. And there's grace in this too because look, Mary and Joseph are poor. There's no lamb. They're doing the pigeons thing. And here's Jesus, born of a woman, born into this world to face down the powers of death. Because I said a minute ago that death has this perfect track record. One out of every one human being who has ever born has died. And Jesus also faced death. Jesus faced a cruel death. Jesus faced a torturous death at the hand of the Roman government. He was executed on a Roman cross. His blood was spilled and it pooled up at the bottom of that cross on that hill 2,000 years ago. But when they buried his body in the ground, it was like, they didn't even know they were doing it, but it was like they were burying his body in the ground like a seed because on the third day, new life exploded out of the grave. And our Savior is not dead anymore. He is risen, he's alive, and he will never die again. And what's more, he offers this kind of eternal life to every single one who will believe the message of the gospel. Paul writes to Timothy that our Savior, Christ Jesus, has abolished death, and he's brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Friends, do you believe this? That we, in our mortality, we face death But because of the work of Jesus, now our relationship with life and death is different. Now when we walk up to the cross and we see the pool of blood underneath the cross, it's no longer a symbol of death for us, but it's a symbol of our eternal life. Jesus changes everything. I think it's wild that we, that we, we, we come every week to a table and we, we take this bread that's been broken and a, a cup that has wine or juice in it and we say, this is, a, this is his flesh and this is his blood and we're going to eat and we're going to drink. What a macabre thing. What a, what a dark thing to think about. And yet it is precisely through these symbols 
these elements that we see the truth that God brings life on the other side of death. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians. He says, we always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. We don't deal with life and death the same way, do we? Oh, I'm just, I'm dead. I've got Jesus in me, but I'm alive forevermore. God brings new life out of death. God brings new life out of death. Jesus passed through death and came out on the other side. And one day, this world in its present form, Peter tells us this world will pass away. And what's going to happen then? A new heavens and a new earth will be born. And until that day, you and I have to interact with death every single day. You and I interact with sickness. You and I interact with brokenness in the world. You and I interact with even just death in our own hearts. How many of you sometimes look at yourself in the mirror and like, really, that death is still in there? That ugliness, that sin? What does Jesus call us to do every single day? Luke 9, if anyone wants to follow after me, deny yourself, take up your cross every day, die every day, die every day, and follow me. If you're, if you're trying to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, if you, if you give place to that kind of death that Jesus calls us into, you'll save your life. See, in, in this life, there's a lot that we do to try to grasp for more life. There's a lot that we do to try to say, I, I need to do whatever I can to preserve myself. I have to do whatever I can. I need my rights and, and, and my time and my money and my health and me. And there's so much of us that, that our life is just grasping for a life that we ultimately cannot hold on to. And what Jesus says is you need to embrace death. Die to yourself every single day. Put your sin to death every single day. And be reminded that he'll take care of your eternal life. So this week, you're going to face a lot of moments that might, even in those moments, feel like a very miniature type of death. Here, here's an example. Uh, you go to the grocery store. Uh, I, this, is, this is about a friend of mine, not me. But you go to the grocery store, you look at two lines, and you think, that one's going to go faster. You get in that line, and guess what? Uh, that line is struck by a meteor, and they have to call in from corporate to come replace the cash register. Meanwhile, 400 other people have gone through the other line next to you, and you're just frustrated. Again, people I've heard about, not me. And in that moment, I, I mean, you might have the opportunity to say, I'm so angry, I'm so frustrated right now. Or you might have the opportunity to say, this is just one of those teensy tiny little deaths. I'm going to put my impatience to death. And in so doing, I'm going to experience the life that Jesus offers, a life of wholeness and freedom and peace. This week, you might get sick. And it's going to be a reminder that one day, you will take your last breath. But if you know Jesus, you're fine. Because he has given you immortality, life through the message of the gospel. If you're here today and you don't know that you have received that eternal life from Jesus. 
we want you to have that gift from the Lord. It's offered freely to all. It's offered freely to all because our God is a God of life. But you're gonna have to repent. You're gonna have to go through something that feels like a death to receive that eternal life. But trust me, it's so worth it. It's so worth it. Will you pray with me as we prepare to go to the Lord's table together? Lord, I confess that sometimes it feels like I'm just living in a land filled with death. I'm in a body of death. And Lord, I, we confess that you, um, you are a God of life. And even now as we come to the table to eat and to drink, I pray that we would eat and drink your very life into us. And that we would experience a renewal from the inside out. And Lord, would you help us this week to face the, the small deaths of this life with the hope of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.